0: Welcome to the Modern CFO Podcast. I'm your host Andrew Sesky. In our second season and speaking with unique investors, I could not be more excited to share this episode with Andrea. Well, thanks so much for being here, Andrea.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. It's a real pleasure.
0: So, not only were you one of the first female executives in this late stage secondary space, you've also been kind of the leading thought, not only the leading thought leader of this entire industry for now a decent amount of time. You've also done it in the most impressive different environments, including Forge, in the Liquidity Solutions Department at Carta, even NASDAQ Markets. And I believe that I saw that you've worked with over 100 different late-stage private companies and have facilitated over $10 billion worth of transactions. So not only uh, do you represent really this entire market, you've also been leading it and a massive force in it. So today, as a GP at Manhattan Venture Partners, uh, which is a venture fund focused on these late stage um, private companies and secondary investments, I really wanted to start off this entire conversation with a big thank you and wanted to start with just allowing you to tell us a little bit about MVP and how you got situated in this role and really just a nice kind of overview of what you're seeing in the marketplace today because it's such a unique time.
1: Of course. Happy to. So again, thanks for having me. It's Always have a great chat with Andrew. So it's, it's a good time. So anyway, with all of that being said, yes, I'm a general partner at a fund called Manhattan Venture Partners. We are a late stage fund with about $800 million under management in which we are a bit unique because 80% of our capital actually goes towards investing in these secondary direct opportunities. What does that mean? It means that we are typically investing by way of buying stock from employees, investors, former employees, advisors of late-stage private companies versus the traditional way of venture capital investing, which is investing in the next round of funding, whether that's a series A, a B, a C, an angel round, whatever it is. We typically aren't going in that direction. 80% or more of the time, we're buying these secondary market investments and that's how we're building our positions in the late stage companies. And so with that being said, I um, joined as a general partner about two and a half years ago. Uh, the founders of the firm are Eric Brackfell, Jared Carmel, Brad Fishman, who are all really legacy secondary market players who even predate uh, me by a few years in this market. And we're all responsible for kind of building their own kind of secondary market divisions of the merchant banks and funds that they were affiliated with back before 2010. So even before 2010, my three co-founders were in the market. I've known the guys at MVP. The team is about 45 people now. I've known them for about six years, really since about the year that they started the fund. Ever since then, we've raised four funds. We're on our fourth fund right now, about to close it. And with our strategy, it really allows us strategically to pinpoint how we want to enter a business that we're interested in. And when I say enter a business, you know, what we're not doing is we're not fighting to issue a term sheet and compete against other late stage investors to lead around the funding, right? So we are really generally considered friendly to many of our counterparts in the late stage venture community, because what we're doing is we're kind of figuring out a price point we have in mind and identifying by way of our network, who all really knows the partners of our firm uh, really well by way of our experience, we find our way in with a certain price point and we're able to really dollar cost average and, and choose you know, that building of a position by way of the secondary. So it's pretty awesome. And it allows us to choose what valuations make the most sense for us.
0: Very cool. So one thing I really want to point out there is that you said that 80 or maybe more than 80% of these investments are are secondaries, which I mean, I would say is probably the inverse of most uh, venture firms out there right now who may have some exposure into the the late stage secondary markets there. So I do kind of want to point that out. And these are still relatively opaque markets that rely on a lot of relationships and people who have had relationships, whether they're in, whether they're operators who have turned investors and that also includes then you know, dealing with the companies themselves and what's going on within the companies and all of the, the equity that's been uh, dispersed you know, between employees and other investors. So this is probably why I'm most excited about this entirety of the podcast is because it's very rare that we have somebody on who can speak to each of those components, whether it is a unique investment thesis, whether it is facilitating it, given the relationships and actually getting into the minutia of you know, what's being made up at the, at the private company level. So one thing I wanted, I did want to point out, that differentiator, because it is really unique for MVP, just before we dive in through all of the past of you know, what it looks like to co-found a marketplace like Forge, what it looks like to work at a you know, late-stage venture firm right now, uh, or late-stage um, venture-backed firm like Carta, or even in the larger uh, exchange scale of NASDAQ private markets, which we have to mention just spun out on its own, too, I do want to kind of hear from your perspective as what you're seeing right now. Uh, we talked a little bit beforehand about how there's so much going on in our political sphere around, you know, what's going to make sense in the future, but I kind of hear both on what you're seeing in the marketplace, maybe some political influences that are taking place. And uh, it's going to be really hard to pack this podcast into you know 40 <laughs> minutes here. So I apologize. <laughs>
1: No, it's fine. It's fine. It's a really exciting time, but very, really fascinating all at the same time too. So exciting, scary, fascinating. And under that idea, I mean, right now, and in our, this has been about 10 years that I've been in this kind of secondary market investing landscape, either as an operator, investor, founder, kind of seeing all the points of the triangle, but I've never seen a world where a company can raise a round of funding, you know, and and be a mid-stage or late-stage company. But I do say mid-stage because I think it's important. And that is because a company will raise a round. It's typically oversubscribed. Most companies are raising oversubscribed rounds. There's just a ton of capital flowing in. And immediately after the round is raised, you know, we're working and, you know, with issuers and their holders, their shareholders, who believe that their stock is immediately worth a premium to that round. Immediately after the round is closed. And, you know, precedent will tell you that um, historically, you know, you could see that common stock, which is issued to the employees of a private company versus the preferred stock, which is issued to the investors when they invest. The common stock's usually priced at a discount because there's inherent risk associated with common stock because, God forbid, there's ever a bankruptcy in a private company the common stock gets paid back last after all the preferred stock and any debt, right? So there's inherent risk associated with common stock and go back three to five years, 20 to 25% discounts for common stock were normal relative to the latest round of preferred financing. And so for the environment to change so rapidly is absolutely fascinating for us.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. That's a great point too. I mean, maybe somewhat more examined is, you know, discount for lack of marketability or just liquidity exactly. in general. But what is, you know, there's very little education around is you know, the difference between rights of first refusal and really what's on the back of that stock certificate. So it's a really, really important and really interesting point because it affects, you know, that uh, somebody who's could be a top contributor, whether you pick a department, but at somebody who's a scaling firm, just having a basic understanding of, you know, all the incentives of you know who actually is on your cab table. I think it's a really, really good point. So maybe just touching on, I know you just recently went on Bloomberg and talking a little bit about uh, we'll have to put them in the show notes there, just the interview is a really, really great interview. Are there anything that you, anything in particular looking for or out of or even concerned about coming up in new the new regulatory environment and any proposed Know, regulatory changes that would affect, you know, in, in your mind, what the ideal environment would be for either dispersing equity amongst startups or even around buying late stage in the late stage secondary markets.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I would say overall, you know, the Ways and Means Committee, which is the committee that's kind of proposing a change to uh, the the Democratic bill, overall there's a few things and I'll just kind of rattle them off and then we dig a, a little bit deeper that really do worry me about the venture landscape. One is obviously changing the qualified small business stock exclusion, which traditionally would allow for a you know, non-tax up to a certain threshold for gains affiliated with your ownership of private company stock and when you go to sell that. That's number one. Number two is the change that is being proposed to the concept of investing out of a self-directed IRA into private assets and how it might be considered too risky for investors to do that out of a retirement account or a tax advantaged account, which is obviously more of the pinpoint we're trying to drill into. And then number three, you know, this is more of a, a higher level theme and it's something that it seems like comes up in Congress quite often, which is just taxing unrealized gains, right? Like that alone is just constantly brought up, constantly talked about at both a gains perspective and then deeper on a carried interest perspective, which is obviously gains that are earned by way of the profits to venture capitalists and those that are, you know, investment managers. Overall, what I will tell you is that the resounding theme across all of these proposed changes and contemplations is that clearly Congress is looking at the folks like Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, and the upper echelon of the tech community as being the only population that really matters in the eyes of Congress. And and the more that Congress can better target them and tax them for their wealth, which was in my mind, earned wealth, quite well earned wealth, um, is something that I feel as though, you know, so shocking because it doesn't, I don't think Congress realized how that permeates down to those who are really the rank and file working at tech companies, right? Employees these days are given stock options at private companies, That doesn't mean that they own the shares outright. A stock option simply means they have the right to exercise, aka pay a cost, to then own common stock shares in a private company. For there to be a concept of taxing unrealized gains when there hasn't been any form of a sale where there's any gain to be had or money in the bank is just constantly shocking to me that that's even a, a consideration. And it's something I worry about because I spend tons of time with thousands of shareholders of private companies. And when they realize that if they want to exercise their stock options in today's world, what exists today is they own the shares, but they have to pay tax withholding on their state and federal income tax rate at the time of exercise. Like that's, there's still a tax and that's when they go to actually have an event happen, which is exercising and holding the shares for there to be a contemplation that you're taxing unrealized gains where there's no action being taken by the holder of these equities and stock options it's just baffling and it's just something that I don't agree with and I think it really impacts those that are trying to build companies and benefit from being in the trenches every day building tech startups and I think that if everything comes to fruition it, you know if this STEM bill passes which let's just hope you know things get thrown under the rug and that you know we move on here but if that happens I do worry about the future of what entrepreneurship looks like and the ability for people to sit comfortably in their jobs in tech roles, and say that they think that they can make a, a solid living without being taxed into infinity.
0: Absolutely, I mean, this is exactly why I think it's important that we we started with with MVP because you've got such a great pulse on you know, the entrepreneurial perspective, what it's like to be in that seat, and you've moved all the way from you know founding companies into marketplaces into now investing. It gives you a certain perspective that uh, I know all. VCs try to come out to say that they'd be helpful and have the same kind of um, you know empathy for building and creating, and there are some parallels between you know creating a new fund and building a company. But it's just uh, it's very refreshing to hear that you've got such an intimate understanding from everything, from exercising your options to you know some sort of liquidity, and really creating successful outcomes for not just founders but employees as well. So that, that's a really refreshing take. I appreciate that. You're kind of begging me to get back into Carta and cap tables and creating more owners and the whole environment around liquidity. But before I do, last comment on MVP. We've kind of talked about the changing faces of investors, uh, changing faces of entrepreneurs. A little bit curious to hear in your marketplace, it's so defined and a bit more niche. Have the faces of those investors changed at all? you know, do you work primarily with family offices or individuals? Have those faces changed and ebbed and flowed over the years? I know we're in a very specific high valuation marketplace at the moment. Uh, just kind of curious uh, from what you've seen in your perspective, uh, kind of the changing faces of LPs.
1: Yeah. So with our limited partners, we work with hundreds of typically family offices. I would say it's the biggest composition of limited partners in our fund. And And quite frankly, a lot of it has to do with the fact that Family offices and and their venture capital kind of asset allocation strategy really means that they rely on the venture funds that they work with to kind of point them in the right direction as it relates to how to segment within venture capital to capture the most value. And with limited partners who are family offices, what we really love about them is that usually the story of a family office stems from some really grassroots, amazing kind of blue collar aspect of growing in civilization. And we have family offices who are, you know, biggest sunflower growers in a country, or they run the logistics industry of another country. And they really feel very impassioned by some of the startup initiatives happening in the late stage companies. And when you speak to them, there's such a personal kind of connection to the startup's mission, where you can see the passion kind of alignment between The history of a family office and the founders and entrepreneurs building a startup that, you know, we just get excited that we have this ability to theoretically kind of connect the two by way of our fund. And so as much as we love, we all love working with institutional folks, school endowments, pension funds, fund of funds and and the like there's a bit more of a disconnect when you're working with an institution that has a bit more of a regimented strategy as it relates to their venture asset allocation, whereas the passion comes from the family offices. And so when we speak, you know, to our LPs and we see that they're all seeing startups more and more and more in the news, right? Because what I think has really shifted in the last five or six years has been that you're now seeing startups with Bigger market caps than any company listed on the NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange, right? So it's impossible to ignore these startups because they're bigger by way of market cap and size and growth than most listed businesses. And that shift means that startups are in the news every single day. There's a new $10 billion minted company every single day, which is shocking to hear. It used to be that seeing a billion dollar valuation four years ago was fascinating. And my friends who work in media say that. Some of them can't even write a story about a company uh, raising at a billion dollar valuation because it's too low these days. Right. So I would say that because of that exposure to startups being more relatively mainstream in the last five to eight years. I mean, look at the advent. uh, You know, really, there was this shift of Facebook, Twitter and then Pinterest, Dropbox, SpaceX. Box, Uber, Lyft, like this, this is all part of the same theoretical generation, which I think is awesome. So it all happened at once. I was in Silicon Valley at the time. And what I'm seeing with my LPs is they know more about private companies than they do some public companies. That's just the way, the way it works.
0: That's so interesting. This is one of my, this is why I'm so excited to talk to you today, because I, even something as simple as a definition of a, you know, say a single family office. I think people hear that term and are slightly detached from, uh, you know, the nuance of what that means as an investor. Typically, uh, a family member or an individual who created an empire, maybe had a liquidity event and now has money cashed away for the family to invest, and has recruited top tier investors to do so. And it almost um, almost makes me think of MVP and family office. That is just a marriage that's really organic of. Kind of being entrepreneurs, investors, which is really cool. And I think that's a really big differentiator for the group, too. What would be funny is to timestamp this podcast as, except for Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp, as of, uh, we're back online today, but a little uh, little shaky, given some new reporting from from the journal and uh, a little outage, yesterday, not a little outage, a pretty severe outage mm-hmm. uh, yesterday. So we'll, we'll timestamp this podcast into history in, in that way, which will be fun to look back at in the time, in the very near term. So no, I really appreciate that. So it's an interesting transition because it's been so rapid for the most part, changing faces of LPs. So I think a big piece of this, and now we get to have plenty of fun going back into time, working our way from, uh, obviously you've been an investor with MVP for a few years now uh, as a GP, which is really exciting. And your experience now, I think we should probably... Open it up a little bit to talk about the head of liquidity solutions at Carta is a really unique role. Obviously, people have likely heard of Carta for their expansion of cap table tools and essentially trying to create a little bit more seamless of an experience around giving, giving out equity or tracking options and working with legal teams to make the process super clean and easy. I think the goal here is overarching, and a number of companies are working on this, is essentially trying to create a little bit more standardization around some of this complexity. Standardization may bring a better understanding. That better understanding might lead to some trust and sharing information, which, as we know, then may allow for a transaction, which ideally is just a disagreement on future value and nothing else, which would be the ideal scenario. But as somebody who has worked on liquidity solutions for a long time, and again, this is coming from NASDAQ private markets, I'd love to hear your perspective on Kind of one of the biggest challenges that remain today um, when it comes to liquidity in the private markets or access to an owner, a new owner, a new buyer that makes the most sense. What do you think are the most challenging things that are still out there? And you know, it would be really, really interesting to hear from your perspective as well is really, is there ever going to be you know, a solution for something around, you know, we're based here in Philadelphia. I am here based in Philadelphia. We've got an incredible biotech community sharing information as a series B company about your innovations, just not something you can put onto a marketplace like Forge or Entrust that uh, there won't be information leakage or, you know, and that's not specific to biotech. It's just an, an interesting example of, you know, this environment and ecosystem here in Philly. That's a pretty broad based question with a lot of challenges, but Uh, kind of curious as these marketplaces develop and you've been at the head of them for for so long, kind of what are you seeing today? Uh, New tech, uh, new information sharing, more standardization. It's a long-winded way to asking kind of what you're thinking about in terms of late stage liquidity while you're still facilitating it today. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, it's it's a packed question, but we'll get through it because it's it's really awesome. It's awesome. So overall, okay, you know, to talk about I'll talk about like just our experience kind of going through the motions of building um, at a high growth startup like Carta and, you know, where all other other businesses like NASDAQ, which owns or used to own up until very recently, a division called NASDAQ Prime Market. And then previous to that, Forge, which uh, I'm a co-founder of and is going through a SPAC currently. But, you know, I'll, I'll get into all of that. What I'll say just to kind of start in terms of information flow and everything I think, as as I noted, you know, the biggest private companies these days are actually getting more exposure in the media than most public companies are, which is really fascinating. And it's because they're just so big, and they're so innovative, and they're breaking rules, and they're making change. And with all of that, they are getting more media exposure. With media exposure comes people who are covering them and digging into the company's analytics, digging into the company's you know, financing history, revenues and growth. There's a lot more of a spotlight on that in late stage private companies these days than there ever was. And so coupled with the concept of vast transparency, you know, companies aren't as hidden as they were five years ago as it relates to their growth because it's also very competitive out there, right? Companies are all competing for talent. So they need to be able to go out publicly and say, we're the best in our space. We're performing the best. And they're doing this because it's a signal to potential recruits to say, look at how big we are relative to our competition. So along those lines, you know, it doesn't take much these days to actually find sources that distill down a company's financial profile, which I think is fascinating. Alongside that, you know, if you have a good relationship with a private company issuer, they're going to provide you with the information you need to create a financial model for yourself as an investor. And, you know, honestly, good people trust good people, right? And so with private issuers, if you have a relationship there and you're looking to invest, you're looking to do a secondary, there is a way where you just have to have the right inroads and the kimono could be opened. I mean, it just it's about asking the right people and being polite and respecting boundaries of private companies, because at the end of the day, they really have no requirement to release any information because they're not publicly listed. Now, as it relates to like obscure sectors, right, more esoteric sectors, I should really be specific there, biotech, hardware, logistics, shipping, you know, some consumer industries. The the issue is, is really the risk. It's the risk and inability to measure outcomes in the future for an investor and I think overall, if we look at specifically biotech, because you mentioned Philly, huge biotech scene, and there's a lot of amazing geographies building amazing biotech companies in the US and beyond. But overall, they're very capital intensive businesses, right? We know that to be true. With that being said, um, you know, whenever I speak to a biotech company about secondary, they're kind of like freely you know, open to the idea of just bringing more capital onto the balance sheet and raising more money because they always need to do that. So- at the end of the day, a lot of them are like, well, you could buy a secondary in our shares or buy our common stock or prefer, but why don't you just invest in us? Because we need the money anyway. So just like, just do it like that. Because if you do that, we'll, you know, we can use some of that cash and do it and, and, and help the employees and get them some liquidity, but like just invest in us because we need the money. We're capital intensive. We're never going to be, you know, profitable. We might never even generate revenue if they're a biotech company. So uh, with all that, you know, it, it's typically that biotech kind of fits in that that world where they're not dealing with like hyper competition by way of the traditional tech companies that are all being swarmed over by way of the late stage funds. So that's just kind of how I see it with esoteric businesses like biotech and, and information and exposure. Now on the platforms, just to kind of go back to that concept, we're talking about Carta, Forge, Nasdaq. There's a bunch of them, Zambato, And If we want to just talk about this, at the end of the day, all of them are trying to effectively reflect and trade and transact in an asset that has a lot of governance control by the issuer itself and is not controlled by way of a transfer agent market maker exchange. And with that, the companies really, you know, the companies, the issuers themselves, these private startups are really benefiting from having kind of closed door access to their equity and their ownership, because you know what, they have the right to do that. They have the right to be very insular in terms of how they manage their investor base. Knowing that the struggle that I think every company that is building software in the private market kind of trading or cap tables or investment management space is kind of looking through is, well, what is the source kind of information for all of this equity or, or legal, it doc- really is the legal documents, right? That govern the ownership of an asset, right? A piece of right. a unit. And you know what? When you're talking about a private company's cap table and a cap table, right? Is a ledger that reflects ownership of, of investors and you know shareholders and otherwise. If that ledger isn't managed properly and kept updated, you really can't do much with that information or at least do much in real time with that information unless it is maintained. And I think that's the struggle that, you know, businesses that are building in this space are are really facing and trying to overcome, which is how do we make sure the source of truth is actually the source of truth and is maintained, kept updated, and the workload related to maintaining equity is limited as possible. And so that challenge is something everyone in this space is trying to overcome, because if that can be solved for, the future of private markets, I think, can really evolve.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting. I think it's very clear that maybe secondary environments for an e scooter brand is going to be considerably different than somebody claiming they've got a, a better and cheaper semiconductor you know, capital equipment company, right? So esoteric markets are a really good piece of this because essentially, what in my mind you're describing is slowly merging some of the public market infrastructure into the private markets, but you know, where we can really start is picking off the you know the most important pieces, which is going to be investor protection, information flow, and really all everything you've just kind of walked us through. Something I actually don't know, we can go from Cardo to Nasdaq to Forge, but something that just dawned on me that I am shocked I haven't asked you in the past is kind of what the early days of creating you know, equity and and forge look like. So, for those who don't know, um, Equidate was uh, you know the, the the preface and preliminary version of uh, what we know is Forge today. And you mentioned they're going through a, a SPAC, which is uh, exciting. But was there an entrepreneurial experience? Did you start a, a firm and had a you know liquidity challenge, or were you an early employee? I'm almost embarrassed. I don't know the answer of how you came to start this whole whole journey of yours.
1: So Forge, aka formerly known as Equidate, we were a bunch of misfit startup founders, the four of us. Some of us had worked together in a previous kind of law firm tech company, and then kind of coupled up with a few of my friends. And so the four of us total who really kicked off the business. And it's funny because I would spend long nights kind of working at our legal tech firm, myself, as well as one of the other Forge co-founders who were at the legal tech firm, and one of my very good friends, who is the CEO of uh, Forge, was at Zynga at the time, Zynga, the gaming company. And uh, during this time, Zynga was going through ebbs and flows and doing layoffs and preparing for their IPO because it, had, it hadn't happened yet. This was pre 2014. So it was probably 2013, 2012. And uh, my my friend, uh, So Hale, the co founder, the CEO, uh, former CEO of, of Forge, um, he and I spent long nights kind of you know toiling over. Well, if he could only leave Zynga to go build a startup, what would he build? Because he had already been building a couple companies. He had gone through Y Combinator. He kind of knew what he wanted to do next, but he couldn't leave Zynga because he had these golden handcuffs in the form of their equity. So... Zynga, you know, as I said, was going through a lot of ebbs and flows, some good, some bad. But it's funny because Sohail, every single time he would uh, go see that there was like a wave of layoffs, he would kind of secretly was begging he would get the layoff package so that he could go build a new startup. And that never happened. He never ended up getting, you know, terminated as part of the layoffs. So he said, oh, my goodness. So with all that, Sohail and I kind of really brainstormed and said, well, what if we could just like sell your Zynga stock before they go public? in some way, shape or form. And like you get your cash and then we could go build something cool. And we really dug into it to find out just how difficult that idea really was, was, you know, selling your private company startup stock before a traditional IPO. So we started really thinking about like what it would take. And overall, we said, we're going to have to come up with an instrument to trade or transact in these like private securities, because it's so difficult to trade the underlying stock itself, that underlying startup employee stock. So, being green and being young is probably why we thought we should build Forge, because in hindsight, you know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of you know ebbs and flows we felt as a business building something in a very regulated space. And so we buckled down, we worked till 3 a.m. every night, and we started building the concept of like an in, a trading instrument for private company stock that could be used at scale by rank and file employees, just like my co-founder Sohail. So that was alongside my legal team at my legal tech startup. So that's where some of us made the jump. To uh, starting Equidate because we got so impassioned by it. And anyway, I will tell you the, the weirdest thing about building a startup that has any sort of notoriety is that people then know your startup. So like they come up to you and they're like, "I know Forge," and you're like, "How do you know Forge?" I, I like, what do you? And it's, that's the weirdest thing and coolest thing to me all at the same time. It's just like the recognition starts happening, but it took years to get there, and I still can't believe it happened. It all happened the way it did.
0: That's incredible. I'm I'm really glad I asked because well, first it allows me to reminisce a little bit about the I never talk about nth round on on the podcast, but um, given that we started with a, a liquidity platform and working really long hours to create you know unique environment for people to buy and sell private company stock, the uh, the legal hurdles and um, you know it's funny because I just had uh, Jeremy Bax on the on the podcast. who had um, a really early iteration of uh, a private company, just really automating the PPM process and uh, his answer to that sort of similar question of how did you get into this or, you know, why would you choose a marketplace that's so heavily regulated as a, you know, your first entrepreneurial venture. And uh, he started kind of just chuckling saying, um, you know, I wouldn't have in hindsight, like, uh, you know, you don't really go out expecting that level of difficulty and mostly just excited uh ignorant ambition, but for the most part. And uh, it's pretty cool to see when some of these marketplaces can actually solve the, the chicken and egg problem. And what's interesting to me now, though, in this, um, and we'll have to talk a little bit about how public and private markets may or may not be merging, because so I'd love to hear kind of your perspective. Um, I just remembered while you were mentioning this, that I put out a, a 10 private capital markets predictions. And now I'm nervous to go back because it's starting to approach the end of the year and see how many of them came true. But I covered each uh, NASDAQ private markets, Forge, Zimbato, kind of all of these uh, different marketplaces. And now, now I'm a little nervous to go back to see how wrong I was or right I was. <laughs> I have no idea. But do you kind of want to think like in one of the questions about kind as of as we're thinking about how the marketplaces may merge from public and private markets, obviously information flows a big piece of this, but do you think there's legitimate appetite for early stage startup you know, companies that maybe just series A and series B? Are you seeing that, that there is an actual, I know the dollar amounts are going up into these new rounds of financing as there are fewer opportunities and probably money chasing them. But kind of mm-hmm. curious to see if there's legitimate appetite for you know, secondary markets to continue to trickle down into, you know, into the earlier stages.
1: Yeah, I would say, so I was just looking at data. Um, that really spoke to the fact that over 50% of series B rounds now include a secondary component and it's not necessarily limited to the founders. It expands some of the early employees or maybe even, you know, angel or seed investors who just had stuck with the business and needed a little bit of cash because they were the founders, mom or dad, or, you know, something similar. So I do absolutely see the trickle down, but I would say it's really predicated on the fact That in today's world, series A and B rounds are getting oversubscribed. And so, you know, the activity that's happening in 90% of instances, and this is all based on the data I had been reviewing, was that it's really the the secondaries are happening because the rounds are oversubscribed. The company doesn't want to take on any further dilution. And so, you know, the founders kind of look in their pockets and say, what else can we offer to the investors we do want to bring on as partners? And they end up offering, you know, a portion of their own stock. And, you know, I obviously don't blame them because these founders are, are taking usually huge pay cuts to build their startup for the first few years. So it's a great way to incentivize and keep them happy and motivated. So I would say to me, it's absolutely a result of the abundance of capital in the second in, I'm sorry, in the private markets overall, but I will tell you, go back three years and if I saw liquidity in the series A or B, a lot of it was more of a sweetener than anything else. And when I say that, it's that a company was raising money. They wanted to bring in some really strategic investors. And as a way to get better terms for those investors, they would offer their own kind of founder stock or employee stock at a discount to the series A or B or C as, like I said, a sweetener. You know, and and that has really shifted to not being a necessity in the best companies. And instead, it's kind of a a volleying point that's brought up later as a way to get some capital, more capital in that is non-dilutive in its function.
0: Absolutely. I mean, this is why we're really lucky to have you, because I was just thinking about Adina Friedman, CEO of Nasdaq, came out and said, look, there are really only two aspects of the convergence of public and private markets. One is market participants. The other is uh, information disclosures. And while it's nice to be able to throw out that lofty and uh, reductionist kind of idea there, I'm just glad we can go into the minutiae here about really how you align incentives. And you're the perfect person to articulate this because you've actually seen when liquidity has been facilitated and how to create this ideal environment. So I know that we're kind of like ripping through a lot of this. And one question that I have to ask all of, uh, all, the list, all of my guests to provide a unique insight for listeners is really, you know, from your vantage point, do you think that there's something underestimated in the world today? And if so, is there any individual who you feel is really addressing this unmet need? It doesn't have to be anything about what we've talked about today. It doesn't have to be about um, private markets or access or anything like that. Totally industry agnostic. Could even be an interesting book you've read that you'd like to share, but love to posit Mm -hmm. it because you just got, you have such a unique perspective that what you feel is underestimated, the rest of us should at least be aware of.
1: Oh, I appreciate it. No, it's such a great question. I will say something that I've really spent a lot of time thinking about is the shift in how people go about planning their day-to-day and their living and where they're going to be and how they plan to travel and what family life is going to shake out to be in the coming years. Overall, you know, through the pandemic, I think it really expedited a lot of the mindset around what it looks like to be more mobile and with that being said, I am fascinated by the changing dynamic and of family lifestyles and how people want to be in multiple places at the same time. And quite frankly, how in today's market, owning real estate really isn't any more, you know, of the best investment strategy as part of a family's, you know, overall gross income and value. It really isn't. It, it's you know, we're at a top of the market kind of focus here, so people are exploring other avenues. For investing strategies, because as we are you know, talking about tying into today's theme, the democratization of investing is happening rapidly around us. So people don't need to buy a house to say that that's going to be their highest grossing asset over time. And so I really see that what I get fascinated about in today's world are companies like Picasso, which is a startup, and Feather Homes, which is a startup that you get to rent furniture by the month that gets delivered to your nomadic lifestyle and picasso was started by the guys who were in the real estate firms at redfin who say let's do fractional ownership of mega homes because why dump all of your you know net value into one home and instead let's pool it together and you can own you know an eighth of an amazing luxury home and then you could sell that eighth and i think that that's fascinating to see and i'm i'm exceptionally excited about the dynamic of what's happening because i think In today's world, we all can travel faster than we ever have been able to do as a society. We have better access to information to be able to travel faster. And I just think we're going to be continuously more mobile. You know, even though the pandemic is still kind of scary to all of us, the turning point is happening now where people are, you know, they're back at it, they're traveling again. And I think that the velocity of how we all live day to day and where we are is going to be increasing on a rapid rate. So I'm constantly fascinated by it.
0: Yeah, well, and you mentioned a few interesting companies for us to keep tabs on as that develops. I don't think it's going away anytime soon. I think the pandemic has been a really big accelerator of uh, some of these trends. Just for people who want to be able to get in touch with you, where can people find MVP on social media or LinkedIn? I know there's mvp.vc is your website. And what if they want to follow you and uh, kind of uh, look to you for some thought leadership?
1: Oh yeah. So I am, I am uh, both myself, MVP. were online. We've got our, we've got a very active LinkedIn page at MVP as well as a very active Instagram account. I will tell you one of my partners, Rashawn Williams, who actually before MVP started the venture fund run by Nas, the rapper. He was the managing partner of that fund. He has an amazing online presence on Instagram, Twitter, everything. I'm on Twitter a Walm is uh, my, is my Twitter handle. Um, And yeah, I I would say people can reach out there. They can email me. I'd like to be readily available. And I hate to say it, but LinkedIn is actually a conduit and people can always find me there, which I think is great.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for joining the Modern CFO podcast. Andrew. I'm sure we'll have to touch base again in the new year. And I just really appreciate all of the time you spent with me today. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks so much for hosting me, Andrew. I appreciate it.